The scripture reading for this evening comes from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So tonight, we are going to start a new series, working our way through the book of Jonah. And that will take us really all the way up till, till Advent this fall. And in addition to that, just uh, to let you know what we're doing this fall, in addition to Jonah... Our pastoral resident, uh, Matt Clegg, is going to preach through the book of 2 Timothy uh, throughout his, his one year here with us. And uh, he's going to get the chance to do that pretty much once a month. So uh, a few times between now and Advent, uh, he'll get to start his way into 2 Timothy. But I'll be in Jonah from now until Advent. So uh, as we come to this book, uh, Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, The major prophets are like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, the big, long books. Jonah is one of the shorter ones, and there's 12 of them. And if you've ever heard anything about this book before, you've probably heard about Jonah and the big fish. It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And yet, ironically, uh, the fish only shows up twice in two verses. It gets a disproportionate, though understandable, uh, amount of press. However, uh, even that bit about Jonah and the fish, it really does fit into a much larger story of push and pull between God and Jonah. And as we'll see, tension enters into the story right at the very beginning in these first three verses that we're going to look at tonight. And it runs throughout the entire book and orbits around a central question that this book aims to answer. And it's the question, what is God really like? And I suppose you could come to any book in the Bible and ask that question. Because to some extent, that's what the whole Bible is about, is revealing to us who God is and what he's really like. But it is a question of prime importance for this book. And therefore, I want us to spend time this fall asking that question, what is God really like? And the reason is because it's a question, I think, we don't really take time to ask. Given the daily ebb and flow of life and its chaotic, uh, tumultuous character, a question like this, what is God really like, requires you to actually stop and think about who he is, how you would answer that question. And my guess is we might answer that question in very different ways given the day. And so I want us to spend time walking with Jonah, as it were, in the midst of this tension that he and God uh, experience in this story to answer that question, what is God really like? Now, we don't really know who wrote the book of Jonah, But we do know when it happened. Happened in the events that it records took place in the 8th century B.C. 
And it's at this point in the story of the Bible that God's people are a wreck, to put it mildly. Uh, What was a unified kingdom under uh, Saul and then David and then King Solomon is now a divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The capital is is Samaria. The southern kingdom is Judah. And there are some good kings throughout this period of biblical history, but for the most part, the kings are pretty bad. They don't lead the people very well. They do things that God has said again and again, don't do that. And uh, eventually, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are overwhelmed. They're destroyed. And God's people are carried off into exile. So we're in this period of history before the exile, but in the period where God sends his servants, the prophets, one of which is Jonah. And as we come to these opening verses, really all we're going to do tonight is look at the two main characters of the story, God and Jonah, and their opening conversation, and how that sets the trajectory for everything that follows. So what we're going to do tonight is look at God's call to Jonah, and then Jonah's crisis of faith, and then I want to end by just simply asking the question, how, are we going to, how can we apply this story to ourselves. So first we're going to look at God's call to Jonah, and then Jonah's crisis of faith, and then how can we apply it to ourselves? So let's look first here at God's call to Jonah in verses 1 and 2. It begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for there evil has come up before me. And so, In order to understand this call that God gives to Jonah, we have to back up a little bit. We need to look at a little bit of backstory. And like I said, the events of this book take place in the middle to the latter part of the 8th century. And they took place during the reign of Jeroboam II. A little bit of background on Jeroboam. There's two Jeroboam I was the first king of the northern kingdom. And he becomes the paradigm of the bad king. He does everything a king is not supposed to do. He sets up high places, which are places of false worship throughout the northern kingdom. He does everything he can possibly do to prevent God's people from wanting to go back to Jerusalem. To to rejoin with God's people in the southern part of the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam too is the same. That's who's in power when Jonah is doing his ministry. And it's a I want to read to you, how do we know that? Well, there's a very important passage in 2 Kings chapter 14. And I just want to read to you a couple verses because this really does set the backdrop for the tension that we see in these opening verses. Listen to what we read. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that is of the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's Jeroboam 1, the first one, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. There's two things I want you to notice from this backstory that helps to set the context for this book. First of all, I want you to notice the evil wickedness of Jeroboam the king and God's people. That's a key element in this bit in Second, Second Kings. Jeroboam has continued to lead God's people against God's will. But then notice also, God, through Jonah, proclaims mercy. He restores the boundaries of Israel, which back then meant God was having mercy on them. He was establishing them. And it even says here that in verse 27, that God would not blot out the name of Israel. And he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, this wicked king. So on the one hand, you see the wickedness of God's people and God having mercy on his people, though they don't deserve it. Now, a couple of key points for you to notice. God used Jonah during a very dark time to proclaim good news to his people, despite the fact they don't deserve it. And second, think about this. Jonah was used by God to proclaim, hey, I'm going to restore the boundaries. I'm going to give you the land I promised. He probably was a very popular guy among Israel, given the outcome of his message. He came bringing good news of promise, and it happened. That would have been a very popular and even powerful position for Jonah to be in. But then notice here, in our passage, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against their wickedness, as we read there in verse 2. Now, what's Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital of Syria. It's located in what is now northern Iraq, near the city of Mosul. And this call becomes to Nineveh. It becomes all the more striking when you realize, just a few chapters later in 2 Kings, actually in chapter 17, three chapters after the bit I just read you from chapter 14, Assyria comes and captures Samaria and ruins the northern kingdom. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So here, God is calling Jonah to go to the hated enemies of Israel and to preach to them. Jonah was a prophet to Israel, to God's people, but now he was calling him to go beyond the borders of Israel 
He was calling them to go beyond the borders of Israel to this wicked nation, to these people, the hated enemies of Israel. Now, I'm trying to build a little bit of tension and momentum so we can begin to see what happens and why there's such tension between God and Jonah here. Remember, Jonah was called to preach to Israel during the time period of a wicked king in order to bring blessing to God's people. And now God calls him to go to another wicked people, but not God's people, to a foreign people, people who are the enemies of God's people, to preach to them as well. And notice a couple things here about Jonah's call. It's clear. It comes with clarity. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. God is not mincing words. He's being very direct, very straightforward to Jonah. But notice it also has a note of sovereignty. He says, go to Nineveh. In other words, God is telling Jonah, I'm not just a local deity. I am the creator and sovereign over the whole world, even those people, those nations that are utterly opposed to all that I stand for. And it also comes to him, not just with clarity and sovereignty, but responsibility. That he is to go to this nation, to these people, totally different than him, who are dead set against him. And he's to go there as a part of God's plan, the purposes of God, towards these people beyond the borders of Israel. In other words, Jonah is having to face up to that God has a purpose and a plan for people beyond Israel. But he's going to accomplish that through his people. Which takes us very back, way back to the very early chapters of the Bible when God called Abraham and said to you, I will make you a great nation. And through you, I will bless all peoples. I will bless the nations. Jonah is now caught up into that. Now, Jonah's call in verses 1 and 2, understood in light of this bigger picture of Jonah having been called to preach to God's people under Jeroboam, a wicked king. Now he's called to go preach to this wicked people of Nineveh. It begins to help explain, I think, the crisis of faith that Jonah has. Let's look here in verse 3 at Jonah's crisis of faith. What was Jonah's problem? Was it that he didn't understand what God said? I don't think so. Remember, this call came to him with clarity. Arise, go, preach. See, Jonah's problem wasn't that he didn't understand God's word. His problem was that he did understand it. And he wanted no part of it. So what's he do in verse 3? Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, what's Tarshish? Uh, Tarshish is most likely a city in the southwest part of Spain, as we know it today. Now, where's Nineveh compared to Israel? It's north and east. So think of it this way. You have Nineveh. Israel, Tarshish. In other words, what the writer is telling us is 
Jonah is trying to get as far away from God and as far away from his purposes as he possibly can. He is running in the exact opposite direction. And to flee from the presence of the Lord, notice in verse 3, it begins with that and ends with that. He rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. In the end of verse 3, away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, very simply, what it means is Jonah was turning his back on being a servant. Jonah was saying, in effect, I don't want to serve you anymore. Whatever you're up to, I don't want any part of it. Doesn't matter that you've called me to be a prophet once before. I want nothing to do with what you were calling me to do. And I think, therefore, Jonah's crisis of faith, it generates, I think, at least two questions, probably many more, but at least two. First of all, Jonah must be thinking, what does God have in mind? Why does he care about these people, these wicked Ninevites? Would God actually call me to go preach to them like he did call me to go preach to a wicked Israelite king? And would he even perhaps show the same kind of grace and mercy? Is that what he's up to? But a second question that comes is not just what is God up to, but why does Jonah flee? Why does Jonah flee from God? And I think an initial answer to that question, which we will add to as we work through the book together, is that Jonah had a superiority complex. He had a superiority complex. He's proud. There's a sense in which Jonah thinks that the grace and the mercy that he has been an instrument of and a benefactor of, he's, he's, he's experienced it, really is limited to God's people. And God is challenging that. It's exposing his superiority complex, which is another way of saying that he was proud. And in fact... C.S. Lewis has a helpful way of describing pride as the anti-God state of mind, which I think fits pretty well. Jonah's state of mind in verse 3. He runs the opposite direction and has, wants nothing to do with what God has said or called him to do. And what's happened here is it's not that Jonah doesn't know God or have experienced even God's grace, it's that his pride has compromised what it means to know that you're a sinner saved by grace. His pride is creating confusion and conflict. And in fact, it's distorting God's grace. And how does that work? How does pride do that? Well, let me continue reading here as C.S. Lewis goes on and talks about pride. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. I think that's what's happening here with Jonah. 
It's not that he has God's grace or that he is known by God or is part of God's people. It's he doesn't want to be on the same playing field as these people he's being called to. It's the comparison that fuels his pride and obscures what God is saying to him and calling him to do. And and, and God's call has confronted Jonah with the truth that he has yet to embrace or doesn't quite understand yet, that being an Israelite didn't qualify Jonah for grace any more than the wickedness of the people of Nineveh disqualified them for grace. See, Jonah had turned God's unmerited favor into a badge to look down on those that he thought didn't deserve such favor. This is the tension of this story. God's call to Jonah and Jonah's heart getting exposed. So why do we need this story? Let me me try to answer that by, by putting it this way. I think the reason we need this story is because at different times and to varying degrees, we all struggle to accept God's word as we encounter it in the scriptures especially when it crosses our desires or our plans or our sensibilities. But that's not the only reason. We also need this story so we can locate our own struggles in the word that God has given us. To give you an, an example, this is what's so beautiful about the Psalms. Do you know why the Psalms are there? The Psalms are there to give voice to your soul. The Psalms are there to give voice to your experiences so that you might find your your experience right now in the pages of the Bible and realize, wow, my story isn't the only one. And in fact, it finds a home in this great story of God's Word and His plan of salvation to make all things new. That's what Jonah, that's why we need Jonah's story. Jonah is having a crisis of faith. Have you ever had that? Maybe you are right now, or maybe you will at some point. This, you need this story. So then how can we actually use this story if, if it is the case that we need it? Let me try to put an image in front of you that we can come back to over the next several weeks. Almost... Almost all commentators who uh, study this book at some, in some way or another say that Jonah actually acts as a representative of God's people. In other words, that what you see Jonah doing and saying represents the attitudes and dispositions of God's people that we find elsewhere in the Bible. A sense of nationalism, a sense of pride, a sense of uh, racism even of exclusion, of failing to understand God's mission in the world. And therefore, what I want you to think about is, Jonah actually serves as a mirror. He serves as a mirror of our own hearts. And how might that happen? Well, another way to think or to understand Jonah's flight from God here is that what he really wants is a different God than the one that he serves. 
He doesn't like the God that he serves. He's saying, I don't want any part of what you're doing. Have you ever felt that way? Are you here this evening a a follower of Jesus and you consider yourself a Christian and, and if you're honest, have you ever said, you know, I just wish God wasn't like that. I wish he was different. Jonah is right there with you. He's a mirror for us. Jonah essentially is, he wants a different God than the one he serves. But the truth is, here's the thing. God's God's word is going to offend or outrage everyone in every culture at some point. And why is that? Because every human being and every culture, past, present, and future, at some point and in some ways is at odds with who God is and what he says. It's what it means to be... We live in a fallen, broken world that's at odds with him. So at some point and in some way, everyone is going to be offended or outraged at what God calls them to and what he says. And so what we might be inclined to do is just to get rid of the bits in God's word that grate against our sensibilities or they may seem culturally regressive or irrelevant. But that won't really work. And here's why. Uh, Tim Keller, in one of his books, puts it like this. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship, a genuine interaction Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. See, that's Jonah's struggle. He wants a different God than the one that he serves. He's in the process of creating a new one. And here we're learning that just simply won't work. So how is Jonah a mirror to you in those ways? Can you relate to that? How do you see yourself in Jonah? But I don't want to leave you there because really the purpose of God's word and his claim on your life is not to leave you looking in the mirror only at yourself. Uh, a, a pastor who lived a couple hundred years ago by the name of Robert Murray McShane once wrote, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Even as we need to, to, to treat and look at this story as a mirror on our own lives, the ultimate goal is that we would begin to see not just ourselves reflected in the mirror, but that we would discover that in the gospel, that through the eyes of faith, you would increasingly begin to see Jesus reflected in that mirror. That you become less and he becomes more. Because what the gospel teaches is that you are not saved by your righteousness. You are saved by the righteousness of Jesus. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus applied to you. 
And so it's not enough for us to simply navel-gaze and look at ourselves in the mirror only. Do we need to do that? Yes, we do. We need to be honest about that. But to the end that we would then see Jesus and his reflection and not only ourselves. And in Jesus, who do we see? We see the true prophet of God answering God's call to go to Nineveh, as it were, coming here to earth, not running the opposite direction, but coming to the place where we are hostile to him. We're dead set against what he has to say and the offer of grace that he gives, even to the point of dying on the cross. So how do you begin to see through the ugliness of your own heart, even the pride that's there? Well, I think we have to begin by looking to the one who emptied himself and humbled himself by becoming fully human and answering God's call and going for you, even to the point of dying on the cross. You see, this is the gospel. This is the good news that for all who, who don't look to themselves, but to Jesus, discover grace and mercy. A God who can handle the tension and the conflict that you may experience as you encounter him. And the things that he says, and the things that he calls you to that seemingly are impossible or beyond your ability to do. So remember where we began tonight, that the most important question this story asks is, what is God really like? But I also want you to realize that that question can't be answered without also asking the second question we try to look at, which is, why did Jonah run away? And the reason I want you to see both of those questions as questions to continue to think about as we work our way through Jonah is that this isn't an abstract theological treatise about God. It's about a real encounter between one of God's people and himself. See, we're right back to the whole idea of why we need this story. That it can radically change your life if you will receive it. If you will press through and ask those questions and see what are the answers that God gives us as we read this story together, as we listen to what it has to teach us. Let's ask him to do that. Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for giving us this word. And I pray that as we spend the next several weeks uh, reading about and listening to the story of how God and Jonah uh, push and pull and we learn about what you are really like, we pray that you would lead us deeper into a relationship with you. Help us to understand and to rejoice in what you are really like. Help us to find our own stories in this story so that we might be ultimately taken to Jesus and in him find our refuge and our strength. And not only that, but also discover how free your grace is and how far it reaches and how beautiful it is and what hope it holds out to us even to the point where you have promised that one day you will make all things new. 
and that we will join with you and dine with you forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.